Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Stocks for beginners. So we're talking kind of boring companies like bakery equipment and, uh, you know, elevator interiors and car carriers like the trailers you see on back of semis that have that carry cars, uh, ornamental plants and a, a leather handbag company and, and a bunch of different businesses like that that are, you know, very, very steady. Uh, a little bit boring, but that also means it's held up really, really well in all this craziness. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. How can your portfolio balance the companies of the future with venerable businesses that have a long, long history? Steve, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a few months, I think, since last time. February, was it? I think so. Something like that. Just before we even get started, I just wanted to point out just uh, reading in the paper today. This is an interesting business. This is about the, the woman that invented disco. In 1953, just passed away, and it's her obituary. She started up a discotheque in um, Paris in 1953, got rid of the jukebox, put down a linoleum floor, some disco lights, two turntables, because you know she wanted the music to keep going, and built an empire, multinational empire, by the end of the 70s in discotheques. <laughs> she was onto something, an innovator, right, in her own right. Yeah. Interesting, though, that she was so disruptive in terms of uh, she never put a dollar of her own money in. When she started up a new club, she'd uh, tap the elites in each of those uh, cities and get them to pay for it. So she didn't put up any of her own money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, capital raise, right? Capital is important these days, and it's becoming harder to raise, too. That's actually something we've been talking about over with my seven investing colleagues is how tough it's getting or going to be to raise capital. And it's going to be more expensive now for people and companies that didn't do it last year when rates were low. Really? So capital raising is, well, it's obviously not like you just go and uh, meet all the, the hobnobs in any particular city and say, invest in my disco. <laughs> yeah, a little different these days. Yeah. Why is that? Why is it um, suddenly becoming hard to raise capital? Well, uh, I mean, A, you've got interest rates climbing. So, I mean, those are indirectly down the vine, uh, I guess it's going to make uh, debt more expensive uh, to raise if they go for purely debt. And, and also uh, the fact that the capital markets in general are so depressed for a lot of the companies that need that cash. And uh, there were a lot of businesses that raised a lot of money by issuing new shares last year. And uh, when their shares were extraordinarily elevated, overpriced, we could say in retrospect. And uh, so you have a lot of businesses you know, Lemonade is a one that comes to mind. I think they ended up raising a bunch of capital when they didn't necessarily need to. And uh, a lot of people scratched their heads. And and uh, it was interesting to watch because their shares were trading, I think, around over $160 a share at the time. And now we're, what, back down in the 20s or 30s or 40s or somewhere in there, right? But uh, it looked like a prescient move in, in retrospect with a lot of those capital raises. And uh, yeah, so it's a lot to be said for companies that raise capital when they can rather than when they need to. <laughs> so with capital raising, sorry, we've gone onto a rabbit hole already in this interview, <laughs> but have. that's great. That's great. That's good. With capital raises, um, companies can raise capital by issuing new shares or tapping, like you say, the credit market. So Lemonade, the example, they issued new shares. Is that how they did their capital raise? 
Yeah. Well, it's funny because Lemonade, I, I think they only just went public in 2020, right? Or late 2019. I can't remember exactly. So they obviously raised capital by selling shares to investors in that offering, in the IPO. And then, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I believe, if they're the ones I'm thinking of, right? And there's several companies that did, so it could be a number of them. I know there's a few companies I follow that did. But yeah, you issue new shares and it's a dilutive offering, but it also shores up the balance sheet for businesses that are uh, still burning cash and hopefully have a pathway to positive cash flows that can kind of help spurn the need to raise cash in the future because they're generating their own. But uh, it's very important for capital intensive industries right off the bat, like insurance or space economy. You know, you see a lot of like rocket launch service businesses and such that are very, very capital intensive and and they raised cash as well last year. It also, you know, if you didn't, or you're trying to go public now, the market for IPOs is just thrashed now. So if you're trying to go public or if you're trying to raise cash, it's a lot harder now than it was a, a year or two ago. So anyway, just sort of one of those underappreciated advantages that some of the businesses that actually got through the the pandemic and kind of traveled through those extraordinarily elevated multiples that a lot of growth stocks saw. The companies, some of the companies that took advantage of it, actually, it looks like brilliant moves when you're looking back now. Maybe they weren't thinking so much in those terms, but they said, you know what? <laughs> Our stocks are expensive and uh, we're going to take the opportunity. So yeah, kind of interesting to watch. And some people frown upon it too. They're like, oh, they diluted us already. And it's like, well, if you're diluting us when the price is eight times higher, then, uh, hey, fine, you raised a lot of cash and, and really the dilution, it wasn't all that bad. So yeah, big rabbit hole to start, but uh, an interesting one nonetheless. No, that's okay, because just the, the other rabbit hole that's um, a part of that is that you mentioned credit markets. So capital can be raised by offering corporate bonds as well. And you were saying that that market has collapsed as well? It's going to be more difficult because a lot of those bonds are tied to the LIBOR plus, you know, three, four percent or something like that. So a lot of the the capital raises for corporate bonds are tied to interest rates in the broader markets. So down the road, they get more expensive. But that's something that, that you really have to watch is it's kind of the cost of raising capital because you hate to do it when your back's against the wall and you have no other choice but to raise capital in unfavorable terms. So that's, that's one of those, uh, it's not a really good thread. I wish I could remember. It was just yesterday that somebody posted on Twitter that was talking about kind of the merits of raising capital when you don't necessarily need to, but you could use it down the road. And they said, don't raise it when you have to, because that's never a good situation and just has terrible implications for your share price in the process too. So, hmm. Okay, let's introduce you and get back onto track with this interview. Steve Symington is a lead advisor for Seven Investing. He covers a wide variety of industries and publicly traded companies, but loves finding disruptive, responsible businesses chasing massive, addressable markets. So tell us a bit about your career history, how you got to this point in your life in Missoula. Uh, right. Uh, yeah, I live up in Missoula, Montana, and um, I was a, a computer scientist. I was a software engineer in college. Straight out of college, I, I worked for a software developer doing machine learning. We were building neural networks for feature extraction from LiDAR way back in like 2006. LiDAR. There was LiDAR. Isn't that the technology they use in Teslas and um, yeah, self-driving vehicles? Yep. Um, light detection and ranging is what it stands for. L-I-D-A-R. Usually the, the acronym has a lowercase i. Yeah. So we were doing LIDAR and uh, aerial and satellite imagery, and we were writing neural networks and stuff way back in the day for extracting features. Uh, the product that the company that I worked for kind of started out on a NASA contract. And anyway, big rabbit hole there, but uh, machine learning, AI, that sort of has formed the kinds of businesses that I tend to follow 
because of my expertise there. And, um, you know, we had a lot of Fed civil clients and government military contracts that we were working on. But uh, I worked after that. I realized I liked investing more than I liked software engineering. So uh, I worked for The Motley Fool for seven years, wrote about 8,000 articles for them and, and syndicated all over. And it was, it was a, a fun job. And uh, I'm excited for what we're doing now at 7investing. And we have seven of us, and and we provide our top stocks each uh, every single month, and and uh, we focus on the long term, and uh, that's something that's especially important in markets like the current market environment where there's a lot of panic. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. But before that, let's date stamp. We're recording on May sixth, twenty twenty two, and um, this week has been a pretty poor week for <laughs> returns on the markets. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And if you zoom back farther, it's been a poor year for a lot of tech and growth stocks. So yeah, it's a lot of people kind of rethinking how they do things. And it's a tough environment. Some people say this is the hardest environment for tech and growth since the dot-com crash. And uh, that was slightly before my time. I was a high school student when that happened. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's been tough to watch in the, the ferocity of the declines and uh, the short time frame over which a lot of these high growth tech stocks have pulled back and multiples have compressed. And it's been pretty painful for a lot of people to watch kind of money just seemingly evaporate. It's a good experience to go through though, psychologically, because it's a way of testing yourself and I remember during the March 2020 crash, the COVID crash, that um, I talked to another investor and I was feeling a bit panicked myself. And I said, well, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? And he just said, situation normal. Mm. <laughs> yes. And, and that, that really is it. Uh, you know, the, the hardest part of investing is psychological. And it's kind of keeping your wits about you when things seemingly go crazy. And uh, there's a, a tweet that I, I tweeted back in the March 2020 crash first, I think. And and uh, I retweeted every once in a while when the markets are going crazy to hopefully encourage people. And and uh, it, it's something that, that I try and remind you that it goes something like the stock market declines by 10% around once a year. And by the stock market, I'm talking about the broadly followed indexes. So NASDAQ, S&P 500, Dow, on average, they fall about 10% from their peak once per year. 20% every five years or so, 30% once per decade, and 50% a few times a century. So arguably faster maybe now, given the pace that uh, the markets tend to move. It's been harrowing to watch some of these really, really steep declines uh, as we change. But we also had some unprecedented quantitative easing and a lot of money pumped into the system and they're kind of scaling back asset purchases and raising interest rates to try and slow the economy down now a little bit and things are too hot and uh, there's a lot a lot of dynamics and a lot of um, a lot of good lessons I think that we're learning in the process but maybe most key is just keeping your wits about you while all this craziness goes on and not panic selling at the bottom that's I think really really key is focusing on the long term adding money continuously to your portfolio as you can. You know, whenever your capital allows, just add that money and uh, buy businesses that you think are reasonably valued with good long-term prospects. And, uh, you know, that's the key. And over time, the rest kind of tends to work itself out. But uh, you really do have to shrug off however much it hurts times like this when the markets are seemingly going crazy. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We're going to talk about a couple of companies. Um, and the first one we're going to talk about, and this is the complete opposite of your high-growth tech stock, and it's been around for nearly 100 years, I believe, and it's Markel. We'll point listeners, because we have spoken about this in a previous episode, so we can get more detail by pointing listeners to that. But just give us a, just a little bit of a quick overview, again, about this company. Yeah. So, I mean, if you want a, a more comprehensive overview, you can look back. At, it was, I think, February 11th, I looked just before we popped on that we talked about Markel last. This is a stock, one of the oldest stocks in my personal portfolio, both the company itself and how long I've owned it. I think I bought my first shares in the 2009 crash, actually. And I've been kind of steadily adding to it. It's a good cornerstone stock. People call it a mini Berkshire. Berkshire Hathaway, of course, is the company that Warren Buffett has kind of built over the past several decades. And Markel is kind of similar, very similar uh, in that it has a a three-tiered sort of engine that it uses to compound its book value growth per share book value over years and years and years. So those three tiers are, uh, of course, its insurance business. It has a number of very large insurance and reinsurance businesses. It has an investment arm, just like Berkshire Hathaway. Again, they invest in publicly traded securities and fixed income investments as well. So uh, you can keep track of their portfolio. And it has a diversified group of other businesses it calls Markel Ventures. And these are usually non-investing, non-insurance businesses that it's acquired over the past couple of decades. And uh, they're very, very predictable, profitable, steadily growing businesses. And often they leave management in place. They say, we acquire businesses to basically keep them forever. So we're talking kind of boring companies like bakery equipment. And, uh, you know, elevator interiors and car carriers, like the trailers you see on back of semis that have that carry cars, uh, ornamental plants and a, a leather handbag company and, and a bunch of different businesses like that that are, you know, very, very steady, uh, a little bit boring, but that also means it's held up really, really well and all this craziness. So, um, you know, Markel is kind of one of those cornerstone stocks in my portfolio for a reason. You know, you need to kind of balance out. You don't want to go all in on GameStop, for example, like go super high growth, you know, super high risk, high potential reward, obviously in some cases, not necessarily GameStop, but, you know, kind of balance it out. And Markel is kind of that for me personally. And it's growth through good accounting, isn't it? It's all about the accountants and uh, the way that they read the numbers at Markel, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, actually uh, Tom Gaynor, the co-CEO, Richie Witt is the other co-CEO with him, but Tom Gaynor is this sort of quasi famous value investor. And he was actually a CPA before. So yes, <laughs> as far as accounting, it's led by an accountant. So he understands all too well how this works. And and yeah, it's held up, you know, really, really well, you know, as the markets have crashed. I think it's it's down maybe 10% from its highs just last month. But uh, you know, it's still up a modest 10% so far this year as the markets are kind of crashing. And, and that's kind of how it goes. You know, it actually almost does better when the wind is in its face. And, uh, you know, you look back at its per share growth and book value, I think it's been like 10% over the past five years or nine or 10%. Just nice and steady. Uh, you sleep well 
owning a business like this. And, uh, you know, you look at all, all the uh, three arms of its business, they're super healthy. You know, combined ratios of the insurance were 89 percent, which you know means basically for every every dollar in premium they wrote, they made $11. Anything under 100% is a profit for insurance businesses. Uh, I think Markel Ventures saw revenue climb 35% year over year. Again, nice, steady businesses. The float. That's what they call it, isn't it? The float. Yep, exactly. And uh, yeah, for the investment portfolio, you know, they can take a lot of the float for their insurance float. And uh, it's that money that you're holding on to that you don't necessarily need to pay out, but you are holding on to it for the long term so they can invest it. It's uh, I think Warren Buffett, I forget the term he used, but he, at the time, it was a couple of years ago, he had like $80 billion that he could basically invest for free at no cost. It's like borrowing $80 billion. You can invest in, in relatively conservative stocks. And uh, Markel does something similar like that. I, I think I was looking just before we came in because I was like, what? The one sort of like, Eyesore in their most recent report was actually a uh, uh, net investment losses for the quarter. I think they took they took a net investment loss of I can't remember what it was. It was like five hundred million dollars. It fell or something year over year, but that was just because of the unrealized losses in the value of their equity portfolio. So as stocks fall, there's these funky rules for gap accounting. Gap is generally accepted accounting principles for anyone who doesn't know that. But funky rules for companies that invest in equity securities, stocks, uh, where they actually have to report the value of their equity securities on a quarterly basis. So if the value of those stocks goes down, even if they haven't sold, they have to recognize it as a, a loss on their income statement, which is just wacky, kind of weird accounting stuff. So it looks like a loss, but it's not. And actually, when you look at uh, Markel's equity securities line, it's kind of funny. Under their balance sheet, you can look at their equity securities and the value at the end of the quarter was $8.655 billion. So a little under $8.7 billion. And you can see their cost basis for those $8.7 billion in equity securities is about just under 2.9 billion. Not bad. So unrealized gains, right? So until they sell, they don't have to pay taxes on that. And uh, that's kind of the beauty is it's almost almost like a Roth IRA, right? And that's just, I guess, the beauty of investing in general. You don't pay taxes until you sell. But if the value of your $8.7 billion equity portfolio goes down by half a billion dollars in a quarter, who cares if they haven't sold it and they're great businesses they want to hold forever. So incidentally, you can also look at their 13F filings, which is basically a filing where you can see all the stocks that they hold, as long as their value of an equity portfolio is above 100 million. So there's a couple of companies I follow where I want them to file a 13F, but they still their portfolios are less than 100 million. So I'm like bothered because I want to see what they own. But the biggest stock in Markel's equity portfolio is actually Berkshire Hathaway. And uh, <laughs> we all know, you know, Berkshire is is just churning along. And uh, it's kind of funny because you see all these charts, you know, comparing Berkshire to ARK, you know, for example, the most famous ARK ETF and uh, Berkshire's outperformed, you know, since inception at this point. But uh, you know, a lot of people a couple of years ago were talking about how badly Berkshire was getting crushed by all the growth investors. And I don't know, slow and steady, right? The tortoise analogy is, is what, what comes into play here. So yeah, look at Markel's equity portfolio, Berkshire, Google, Amazon, Deer, Home Depot, Diageo, Disney, bunch of big stalwarts they kind of use to ride the market higher and sometimes lower, like in this quarter where you have a lot of the big tech stocks and indexes falling up and down. That's how investing goes, right? So let's have a look at technology stocks at the moment and uh, talk about one that you wanted to have a chat about, and that's SoFi, which um, 
I didn't have a chance to even look this up. It's a, a compelling fintech, according to you. So tell us about SoFi. SoFi, it's been a painful ride. So this was actually a Chamath Palapahatia SPAC that uh, went public June 2021. So a little less than a year ago, actually, it went public. You know, for as much as some people have disparaged SPACs, these are special purpose acquisition companies that kind of went public in an unconventional way, not through your traditional IPOs. We could do an entire podcast on SPACs later if you want to and, and talk about that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. I think we should because, um, yeah, it's something to really understand about how companies list on the exchange. Right. And, you know, because you have direct listings and then regular IPOs, initial public offerings, and then special purchase acquisition companies where they go public by merging with a shell company, basically. And uh, anyway, SoFi is short for social finance and uh, social finance technology. And SoFi is sort of best known as a student loan refinancing company. That's kind of the way most people think of it. And that's what it was when it was founded. I think, what was it, 2012, 2013? And that's kind of how they broke ground. And um, that's part of the reason that they've been pummeled so badly is their student loan refinancing business has been operating at about 50% of their pre-COVID levels since the student loan repayment and interest accrual pause that took place starting in March 2020 and has been extended six times, twice by President Trump in his administration and then four more times by President Biden. Most recently, last month, he extended it through, I think, the end of August and uh, so SoFi student loan refinancing business has suffered because of it. But what's interesting about SoFi is they are no longer just about student loans. So they want to be this one-stop finance shop where you can basically handle all of your money matters through SoFi and their app. So they're very, very focused on mobile first and younger consumers. And uh, they know, you know, it's no longer just student loan refinancing, but they have a SoFi Invest platform, a brokerage. They have uh, checking and savings. They do home loans. They have a credit card rewards programs that they've launched all this over the past three years or so. So while student loan refinancing is still a pretty hefty chunk of their business, it is no longer a crucial piece of their pie. And uh, when it comes back, not if, but when the student loan pause ends, That'll kind of be just be icing on the cake for them at that point because they've gone so far to diversify outside of that. And uh, they're growing very, very quickly. I think last quarter was a record. It was something like 400 and some thousand members that they added. I'd have to dig up the exact numbers. Yeah, 155% year over year, 100 million accounts for Galileo, which is another thing. Members, record growth, 87% year over year growth. They added about half a million members. Last quarter alone, they have about 3.5 million is what they ended at. So they actually report earnings in a few days here. I don't know when this is going to be published. It's May 6th, but I think they report on the 10th. Uh, it should be pretty interesting. So SoFi will be doing some interesting things when we post this. But basically what happened is after the latest student loan refinancing extension, they restated their guidance, said, you know what, we're not going to assume that student loan repayment is coming back. They're just wiping that out of the revenue, are they? Yeah, they said, you know what, um, we'll keep assuming that we still get some, because there are some people who still refinance their loans. But they just basically said, all right, we're not going to assume the repayment pause is going to end this year at all. Because we see midterms coming up, we see some politicizing of the, the student loan repayment stuff. Uh, we might get some forgiveness of federal student loans, which wouldn't apply to SoFi's book of business. You know, the government can't forgive 
private student loans that are owned by companies like SoFi. You would assume so. You'd assume that would be the case, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, well, that'd be a little bit of an uh, executive overreach, I, I fear. <laughs> but what's really interesting is even with the assumption that the moratorium on student loan payments doesn't end this year, and they have their refinance business operating about 50% of pre-COVID levels, they're still growing their revenue about 45% year over year. Their adjusted EBITDA is going to triple this year to $100 million. And they just turned adjusted EBITDA positive. EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization for anyone who's unfamiliar. And their margins, gross margin, operating margin, net margin, if you look down the balance sheet, that's another podcast, I think, right? <laughs> their margins are going to double, even assuming none of that happens. And uh, that was their current guidance that they reiterated just last month after the student loan pause. So growing really, really quickly and a super compelling business that's going to enjoy some pretty impressive operating leverage, even assuming their core student loan refinancing business doesn't kind of bounce back. So yeah, depressed stock that I'm interested in. And where does the revenue come from? How's it generated? Is it a membership fee model or is it the commission on some of the products they're selling? How does that come, come about? Yeah, so a number of different things or ways they can generate revenue. I mean, obviously, when you have a, a business like home loans, you have fees associated, origination fees and everything. They have a personal loan business where they can get a cut and then earn interest. They can repackage those loans and sell them elsewhere. But lending products are sort of their own kind of chunk. So you make money not only on the interest, but also on origination fees for those. Financial services like checking and savings, you can earn some money on the balances that you hold. Actually, they just, that's another key thing that we haven't even mentioned yet, is they just received their national banking charter. So they actually became a bank, unlike a lot of the other fintech companies out there. This is an actual bank that's FDIC insured, and they enjoy significantly lower cost of capital as a result. So that should kind of supercharge their loan growth and have some really interesting network effects for the rest of their business. And they do make in their SoFi Invest, the brokerage business, a little bit of money for payment for order flow. Nothing like Robinhood does. It's a little, you know, you have some sort of unsavory, are your free investments really free? kind of things that happen, but also securities lending, swipe fees, ETF management fees, fees on crypto purchases also that they have just little bits of money that add up pretty, pretty quickly. And they also, the other part of their business, I, I, I hate to use this also, 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 but uh, there's so many. <laughs> and there's more, and there's more. <laughs> yes, just, but wait, there's more. Uh, the technology platform segment is sort of this dark horse that I think a lot of people haven't even considered picking up yet. So what's really, really compelling about what SoFi has put together is that they, for about $1.2 billion, a uh, little over a year ago, a year and a half ago now, they acquired a company called Galileo Technologies. It is a banking infrastructure technology platform. And uh, that is included under what they call their technology platform segment. Galileo, I mentioned in passing a couple minutes ago, has about 100 million user accounts. They actually power companies like Robinhood and Chime and uh, Vero and a bunch of other really interesting fintechs that Galileo is essentially, they want to build the AWS of fintech in this sense. The um, Amazon Web Service. Amazon Web Services. So it's basically a bunch of back-end infrastructure offerings for cloud services in that case. But Galileo is basically the leading sort of AWS-esque 
business that they acquired. But also, they just acquired another company for $1.1 billion in March. This was an all-stock transaction, so a little dilution there, called Technosys. So Technosys and Galileo will kind of be combining forces. Technosys is a cloud-native banking platform that basically fills in all the pieces that Galileo didn't already provide for SoFi. And um, basically, this will help SoFi further vertically integrate its own businesses the offerings that it has for financial services, but also accelerate the pace of innovation. And uh, they believe, uh, I think they said annual cost savings of 60 to 70 million. And uh, they'll be adding, what was it, something like 800 million in revenue over the next five years from that acquisition as well. But a lot of moving pieces here. And I think a lot of underappreciated pieces. Right now you have SoFi trading at well below some of its private valuations from its pre-IPO days. And uh, I, I think super underappreciated. When did it um, IPO? When did it come to market? I think it was June 2021. Wow. So a little less than a year ago. And what's the price action look like since then? Uh, bad, <laughs> if we're going to be honest. It was uh, super volatile at first. And I want to say, I want to look up its 52-week highs because right now we're trading at about 644 a share. That makes it a $5.9 billion business. Looks like it climbed as high as, well, in the last year, $25 per share. At the height of sort of the mania for, for growth stocks, it was really, really expensive. And uh, it's been very, very volatile and basically drifted lower. And uh, I think a lot of what's happening here, and this, this is maybe speculative insight on my part, but a lot of what's happening isn't necessarily due to some fundamental shortfall in the, the business itself, but who owns the stock and redemptions that a lot of these big institutional investors, hedge fund managers, money managers have gotten. And uh, what's happened is they've had to sell a lot of these stakes and uh, other institutional investors have actually been increasing their ownership of SoFi in the process. So I think maybe once the lid pops off, once the operating leverage becomes more clear, and uh, once we get a little bit more of a go-ahead in this market to maybe risk on a bit, <laughs> then uh, I suspect the rebound for some of these stocks is going to be fast and furious, but that certainly doesn't mean they can't go lower in the near term. This has been such a brutal decline for so many businesses uh, in the technology sector and really high growth, particularly for unprofitable companies that uh, you know yet to be profitable even though SoFi, at least on an adjusted EBITDA base, turned profitable last year and is in the process of ramping up its operating leverage. And that's that's kind of what we're caught up in at the moment. It's like this incredible tidal forces that uh, no one can resist and everyone's being basically sucked under by it. Yeah, indiscriminate selling, really, in a lot of cases. And, and I, I think that is shaping the stocks that I'm focusing on right now is I want to find businesses where the underlying business is better than it was at those highs, significantly better, where it's not just a matter of a deteriorating business where I'm betting on a turnaround, right? A Peloton comes to mind, you know, in that case, for example, where you have this business that's really struggling and they have inventory issues and they're marking down their products and they're trying all these things to turn things around. News that came out today that they're trying to sell 15 to 20% of the business to shore up their balance sheet because they're burning so much cash. And that is a turnaround bet, right? If you buy something like that now, you hope it doesn't get worse. But this is a business that is only getting stronger. And uh, a lot of the businesses that I'm focusing on right now are businesses with either healthy cash flows already or a clear pathway to profitability and cash flow positivity. 
And, uh, you know, I want these businesses to be able to continue kind of growing and leveraging themselves up. And, and I think for investors with long timeframes, you know, if you can focus on those kinds of businesses, you know, we've kind of pivoted to technology stocks in general, right? But not just technology stocks, but just high growth stocks where multiples maybe got out of hand. And uh, at the height of February 2021, then again, kind of November before things really took a turn for the worse again after they tried to stage a rebound. If you can focus on investing with a long-term mindset, and I'm talking three to five years, think about where these businesses are going to be in three to five years and whether you will be looking at a significantly larger, healthier, still growing business in the process. If you can do that, I think there are a lot of values to be had. For people with a stomach for volatility in these kind of earlier stages, because right now it's a harrowing time to be an investor. It's been something. (laughs) So if listeners want to find out more about you and your work and your recommendations, how can they find you? Oh, they can find me at seveninvesting.com. I'm one of seven lead advisors over there. And uh, we each pick our top stocks every single month. We release them on the first of the month for our paying members. We also have articles that we post every single day that are free to read as well there. And uh, our own podcast there and Seven Investing Steve on Twitter as well, on social media. You can always find me there. But yeah, shoot me a note if you have questions about anything I've written. I'm always happy to respond. Fantastic, Steve. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's always fun. And uh, <laughs> good luck with the markets moving forward. Let's see what next week brings. <laughs> or this week when this is going to air. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be interesting. We'll, we'll have to touch base every few months and kind of see kind of the state of the market. It's kind of nice to look back and be like, oh, that's where we've come since then. Yeah. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.